Foo Bar's World Fuck Up with Joe Forrester and Hannah East. Hello and welcome to Foo Bar's World Fuck Up. I'm Joe Forrester and you join us as we career headlong towards the business end of the tournament. As Japan bow out, quite literally, Brazil samba their way through South Korea, much to the chagrin of rent-a-quote clickbait pundits everywhere. Hi, Jason Cundy and TalkSport. Luis Enrique backs up his claim to be the best manager in the world by engineering an early exit for his Spain side at the hands of Morocco and England's steamroller Senegal to set up a quarterfinal with Kylian Mbappe featuring France. Coming up on today's show, we talk England with musician Maolo. We hear from George Boxall, sports journalist, sports journalist and Englishman in Paris, ahead of England's quarterfinal matchup with world champions France. And our big conversation is all about sports washing. Plus, we are talking sports law. Uh, it's not just me, though. It's Hannah East. You're right, Hannah. I'm all right, Joe. I don't think you you don't sound very well, Joe. I feel a bit under the weather and I've been working quite a lot. It's quite a busy no, time. No, you have, right. Listen, how, what time do you get to bed after the England game? After the England game? Yeah. Because uh, this is what's run your immune system down, Joe. This is what happens when there's a tournament on, you get really ill because you go out and just get very drunk all the time mm, and then you get ill. That is, that's exactly what happens, but also just keep working. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just like, oh, I've got work tomorrow at 6am or if I just go to the pub and have eight pints and <laughs> just wake up on the kitchen floor. Yeah, it's exactly. I'm doing it for Gareth. You're doing it for Gareth. Right, we're going to do things that make you go, mm, later on. But first up, Ugh. let's talk England uh, with Maolo, musician and Manchester United fan. Now, obviously, England absolutely spanked Senegal in the uh, round of 16 the other night after a bit of a slow start. It was a pretty imperious performance as far as I'm concerned. Um, Hannah, did you enjoy it? I did enjoy it. Yeah, we were a bit of uh, bit of heat on our chat, wasn't there, in uh, Rosette? chat going on we're all everyone becomes a football manager don't they when every mm. game's on um I, w- I was a little bit concerned going into that match because oh, I don't know sometimes you can't guarantee with England that they're going to have a, a stellar performance but I was really pleased um obviously with how they played um but I just I feel like the players just clicked really well and it was actually a, a good game to watch um I was excited by it and I'm, I feel really positive um for us playing France at the weekend it is um it is an interesting tournament i think as well because we've got a lot of teams playing quite well um yeah. let's bring Maolo in now so hello oh, mate how are, you? <laughs> how you doing we're good man we're good but the question is yeah. most importantly is football coming home it's definitely coming home yes yes hi i'm good thanks i want to know whereabouts you are you're in your car but where are you where have you just been have you smashed out a gym um, sesh tell me no 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 just um going to pick up my mum I, well, I picked her up I picked her up from work and I've just dropped her back home oh that's so nice <laughs> yeah. have you Did made you her a, a cup of tea a little cup of tea to take with you <laughs> you've got to come oh, on the radio and talk to us Hannah yeah sorry <laughs> yeah we're getting excited but I'm a bit excited to speak to you oh that's good that's I all good. Good. <laughs> and you're you're a United fan as well aren't you yeah who's who's your favorite player at United you know what, man? It was Ronaldo. Yeah. But I'm leaning towards the younger, what's the name? Nacho. Oh, I thought you're not going to say you've lost love for Ronaldo, are you? No, 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 no. Good. Never, never. Good, He's good. not a United fan no more. You asked who my favourite United fan Yeah, okay. Fan yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll let you off then. Yeah. <laughs> have, you been, um, have you been enjoying the United players playing for England at this World Cup? You've got Rashford, you've got Maguire, been, you've got I've, Shaw. I have loved every single bit of it man yeah it's like yeah they're doing us all so proud for all their countries 
Yeah. Do you think Maguire's... And Maguire as well, man. Like, yeah. <laughs> what's going on? It's like a whole different man. Yeah, we want we want him yeah. back at United for the rest of the season, yeah. don't we? We want this version of Maguire. We want that version of him, yeah. We need that. But probably, he was probably dealing with stuff, like he probably had issues with, within like the family and stuff that we don't know about. But mm. the Maguire that I've been looking at lately, playing for England, perfect. Yeah. He's probably like the, well... I wouldn't say the best player, but he's one of yeah, yeah. He's, he's, defi- he's definitely, big. definitely up there. What did you make of the Senegal uh, game then? It started off slow, yeah. Mm. But again, the reason why we have this team talk and you know, like you've got your manager there. There's a reason why the manager's the manager. He assesses the game and then comes back and talk to the players and tell them what he wants them to do. So I guess yeah, like that's what it was. I had, I was confident we was going to win because the way England's played. There's about three teams in the World Cup at the moment that I feel like they're dangerous and England's one of them. So you've got England, Portugal and Brazil. Not so every other team. Well, France. <laughs> you know what? France, from what I've seen, from what I've seen, let me just say something. Mbappe's the only threat because the other game, did he play in the game where they lost? Was it 2-1? He came on at the end. Yeah, he came yeah. on. But yeah, I thought that's the only threat and... Once you take away Mbappe, I think the rest of the team's just again they're normal. But how do you how do you stop him? Because he pretty much does whatever he wants. <laughs> we just pray Carl Walker's hundred percent. That's all. I yeah. think with Carl Walker in there, we're good. No problem. No yeah, so Walker's pace. <laughs> so obviously you mentioned Brazil, you mentioned uh, France as well, Portugal. Yeah. You think they get yeah. past France? Can they go all the way? That's the only. Do you know what? The only threat that I see at the moment again is Mbappe. So if we go through France, I don't see no reason why we shouldn't. Like literally, I feel like the biggest threat right now is France on Saturday. Once we go through that, God willing, we do. Yeah. That's it, man. There's no need to even worry about the rest of the whoever's like we're used to them as well. You know, like Mbappe. The only problem I say as well is. Most of the France, like the players in France, I don't think they play in the, they don't play in Prim, they don't play in England. They play in like um, Germany mm. and again France. So we're not really used to where Portugal. We've got all their players. Most of the players play in the Prem. And what? Who else is out there? Um, what's the other team? Brazil. Yeah, well, Brazil, Argentina. Yeah. Yeah. yeah they're all right, man. They're I all mean, right. they're okay, I mean, but. Yeah, that's all we need France on Saturday. That result 100%. to give us that confidence and the momentum is just there. What's been your favourite yeah. moment of the tournament so far? Because it's been a few. Everyone says a different thing. So what's yours? It's hard to pick one. But Rash's free kick was just mental. Yeah. You know, like he came on and he just, the way he stood on the ball, you could just tell this kid's so confident. And to put it past the goalkeeper where the goalkeeper was actually standing as well, that was crazy. Uh, that was crazy. I remember watching that. Imagine if he scores. And um, before I actually said, imagine if he scores, he scores. Yeah. It was good. And where's I really your, like that. But... Where's your go to place to watch the game? Because Joe will book like two or three different pubs and make yeah. reservations everywhere yeah. around London. Where's your go to place to watch the matches? You know, I've been watching it on my friends. So, like, 
it's either on mine or one of our friends that would just pick a random spot and then we would just go there and watch it. That's a good yeah. shout. See, I, I like to, I, I need, I need multiple options because I'm, I'm that person. <laughs> all my mates are like, mate, where are we watching the football? Like, what are you asking me for? You're an adult. Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> he you know what, it starts off a FIFA game. So yeah. is, we start off on the FIFA. So we'll play, so it's whoever's house, like, so I've got a PS5 and I, I love FIFA. So we'll, we might start off on mine. We're all playing FIFA. And then I do not like, do you know what? This is the only time, only when England's playing that I don't miss the football basically the walk up starts at six o'clock for me. It don't start it don't start at seven, it's not at six. Mm. So we'll make sure we go through the whole thing from the beginning till the end. But every other game, you know, like you just make sure you're there for seven o'clock or for four o'clock when they start. But Goes yeah, it starts off. <laughs> yeah, we're ready for them. <laughs> yeah, I just doing really well. Just finally, mate, um uh, I checked out the video for the new single. Um it's called Roll It. Um, and from from what I can tell, it's it's not yeah. about making pastry, if you know what I mean, right? Yeah, when we say roll it, so tell, so tell us a little bit about the single where we can get it. <laughs> is it, it like sausage about... rolls and that, like a jam rolly poly? Is that what you mean? What do you it mean? It could be whatever you're rolling, whatever you're rolling, <laughs> that's the way it is. Uh, yeah, my new single roll is out now on all digital platforms. And you can find it out everywhere, man. It's there. So I'll go by the name of Marlo, M-A-U-L-O, and roll it, R-O-L-L-I-T. It's out there on every platform. And thank you very much. Oh, amazing. Thank you so much, mate. Um, do go check out the video. Go uh, get the single wherever you get your music. Thank you very much, Marlo. Thank really you. appreciate Thanks having you on, mate. Um, nice one, mate. Right, okay. Now... <laughs> The World Cup is, of course, a global event. And today we are heading off to France, who England are facing on Saturday. Now, as we know, France are the reigning world champions. And with Kylian Mbappe currently the tournament's top goal scorer, and in England fans everywhere are having fevered nightmares about watching the French superstar happily romp past a weeping John Stones and Harry Maguire. However, perhaps the proud Gallic cockerel has something to fear from Gareth Southgate's young line. Are you okay, Joe? <laughs> Hannah doesn't see the intros that I write and, <laughs> and then if you like stutter or mispronounce something I'm like what are you talking about I just build it up too much and I get so overexcited with trying yeah. to make them really florid um <laughs> <laughs> oh dearie me um right here to tell us whether he thinks England can give Le Bleu the blues is <laughs> George Boxall <laughs> freelance journalist in Paris um let's bring George, it would um my um my French impression, Hannah. Yeah. Is the candlestick from Beauty and the Beast. Oh my god. The, the dining room proudly presents your dinner. So George is with us now. What embarrassing Hi, moment. <laughs> I mean, hello. Oh, mate. he's just logged in. Now then. <laughs> um hello, you, hello. <laughs> well, it's it's lovely, it's lovely to be on the show with you guys. I have been getting some absolute stick all week from all the French lads at work. Honestly, it's been really? relentless. As soon as as soon as we won against Senegal three 0 the group chat was live, and they were just firing shots straight away, straight what are they away. Saying, what are they saying to you then, George? You can never defeat us. We have Mbappe. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, that's literally it. They 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 know they know they've got a great team. Yes, they know they've got a great team. They're so high on confidence. You know, I guess when you're the world champions in 2018. You've got such a great team with, you know, Mbappe, Giroud, Griezmann's firing all cylinders. Yeah. And they, they just know it. They just know it. So, George, how, how do, <laughs> how do 
on earth do England stop Mbappe? Because I he scored five goals, and I look at him and I get the impression that he's not actually trying that hard yet. I mean, how did England stop him? It's, it's, it's going to be a big job for Carl Walker, essentially. Yes, everybody's, um, everybody's saying that. Like, right. everyone, everyone is saying that. Really. Or Kyle. Um, <laughs> oh, God. Well, you, you, can try, you can try and do what other teams have been doing to him throughout the whole tournament. You can try and double up on him, have three players on him. But, you know, that's going to leave space for Giroud. He's really, Mbappe is really an enigma to try and mark and to try and, to try and you know, get him out of the game. It's, 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 almost, it's almost impossible. So I think with Mbappe, you just you just have you just have to pray that he's not on really really sharp form. Yeah. But or, but you know potentially double up on him with Carl Walker and John Stones. But then again, you're leaving space for for, for others such as the Griezmann and Giroud. It's yeah. it's almost like an impossible puzzle to solve. Yeah, it's not. That's the thing. It's not just Mbappe, is it? It's like the, the other key players as well. So we can't just focus mm. so so much on him. Um, even but yeah, um, even though he's is incredible. Uh, what's your concerns then, George, about England? Where do you think are uh, sort of problematic areas? So, obviously, I've been covering this French team this whole tournament, and I've been really appreciating what they've done really, really well. And that's in the midfield areas with uh, Griezmann and Rabiot. Now, that might not be that might not be the the most obvious um, threat immediately when when you're talking about when you're talking about France but they, they almost they're almost playing in this this deeper role mm. where especially Griezmann he's he's set, he's setting the tempo every time he gets on the ball yeah. he's he's setting the tempo and he's creating chances um so that's really where where France will hurt England the most is in midfield and that's where that's where you're going to need like a Jordan Henderson or a Declan Rice to sort of get, get on Griezmann all the time and Rabiot as well, because they, they, they both set the tempo really well in this France team. To be fair to Didier Deschamps as well, he's not, like, despite his success, he's not always been the most popular French manager, has he? And he's he's got it right this tournament. He's played, as you say, Antoine Griezmann in kind of a more of a number eight role, um, bit deeper lying, bit creative. And it feels like, by and large, he's pretty much got it right. And is that kind of that mood being reflected in France at the moment? Yeah, it was almost, it was almost a forced move in the first place, having you know having the unreal talents of Angola Kante and and Paul Pogba out for the tournament. You you have to switch it up a bit. And you know you're right. Didier Deschamps was was criticised before the tournament for being almost too one-dimensional and not not switching it up enough with the squad selection as well. He was he was really criticised for not not bringing in Jonathan Klaus uh, in the wingback position. So. Yeah, on, on this, he had to switch it up. And I think he made the right decision by, by playing Griezmann in a slightly deeper role. And then, and then again, you've got Chua Meni, who's, who's been, he's been quietly, really quietly, confidently yeah. the, the, one of their best midfielders, really. He's been one of the ones who kind of, uh, on the group chats, who kind of me and my friends, it's been like, this lad's decent, isn't it? And it's like, well, yeah, he's in the France <laughs> national team and he plays for Madrid, so yeah, he's pretty good. Um, <laughs> but I mean, they've got so so many different ways in which they can hurt you. But I wonder, is there any concern about England from France fans? Are they are they worried at all? They yes yes. Because oh, when, okay. when when I speak to when 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 I speak to France fans, they say, you know what, I would actually call this a 50-50 game. They say it would be a right. 50-50 game. It's just they've got Kylian Mbappe, which makes adds a 10% extra on. Yeah. Um, they're, they're really worried about our young players, such as Bellingham. They're really worried about Bellingham. I was watching TF1 last night, the, the French mm-hmm. national television. They were really 
highlighting Bellingham and his dynamic passing, his dynamic movement and his performance um, against Senegal and, and then in the first game against Iran as well. Yeah. So, that, yeah, it's re- they're really worried about Bellingham. It's really what? nice to hear that, though, isn't it? Because in my head, <laughs> I just presume that France are like, you know what? We've got the confidence. We've done this before. We're going to win this. <laughs> well, easy. Also, I've got a mate who lives in Nice, I think he is now, and he at no stage ever has conceded that France are anything less than the greatest team in the history of football. So, like, it's really refreshing. But he's obviously, that's quite a small sample size. But I was just like, oh, I just guess that's what everyone's thinking. Um, no, yes. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry, uh, George. Let me just quickly ask you, so what's been the reaction to Olivier Giroud? I think he's kind of snuck up on a lot of people, that him going past Thierry Henry to be the outright all-time top goal scorer in French football. He's someone who's gone through... Um, various uh, divisions to work his way up to the very, very pinnacle of football in France. Um, what are people's thoughts about him and kind of that status as being France's all-time top goal scorer? Yeah, they, have, they absolutely love him here. It was, it was really during the build-up to the tournament when he was playing for AC Milan and he was, he was, he was banging them in left, right and centre. He, he almost, with his performances, did the addition, had to, had to call him up. And then the injury happened to Karen Benzema. Mm. Um... Yeah, no. In terms of in terms of the goal scoring record, I think the majority the majority of French people are really really happy with it. He's been he's been almost the focal point of an attack. Uh, he, he, where where he he's being played off. He's like the pivot. You know how you know when uh, Kylian Mbappe uh, was always talking about how he preferred to play with Giroud because you know they can they they can play off each other and use the hashtag hashtag pivot gang. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and and people people are really receptive receptive to the idea of Kylian Mbappe and Olivier Giroud and this bromance that's going on in the France team. There's, re- there's a, a lot of good vibes around um, Olivier Giroud at the moment. Yeah. Well, it's going to be a tough game. It certainly is on on Saturday. Who are you going to be rooting for? Is it a bit awkward for you or not? Um. No. It's it's not. Don't it's hesitate. Not Don't me. hesitate, it's George. Not, Come no, on. No. It's just. It's just. I've been supporting England. I've been really nice to all the France fans throughout the whole tournament. I've been saying, I've been really nice to them. (laughs) (laughs) And as soon as as we won against Senegal, you know, I was getting stick in the group chat and everything. So I really, I really, really hope England do a job on them. But professionally, (laughs) but professionally speaking, professionally speaking, it would be great if France um, get to the final. Amazing. Um, And George, for more insight, where where can people um, follow you and stuff? Uh, so you can find me on Get French Football News, uh, which is predominantly on Twitter. We've got a website as well. Then I work for a French site called Le Transfer, if there's any um, French-speaking people out there. <laughs> Amazing. Nice one, George. <laughs> thank you very much, thank mate. Um, yeah, I hope we do a job on Saturday as well, but I'm yeah. slightly anxious. Um, thank you very much, George Boxall there, journalist in Paris. Right now it's time for the big conversation, and we are talking sport washing <laughs> and celebrity endorsement. Um, so we're going to be exploring this issue of sports washing, exactly what it is and the impact that celebrity endorsement on the tournament has had on the legacy of Qatar 2022. Um, aside from football, Qatar has also put on three music festivals to run alongside the tournament. There've been major music artists performing and who are set to perform Black Eyed Peas, Calvin Harris, Blue, Clean Bandit, Craig David, Fatboy <laughs> Slim, and of course, Robbie Williams. Um, Robbie Williams has upset a few people. He's uh, defended his p- decision to perform in Qatar saying it would be hypocritical not to go as he's performed in multiple countries with poor human rights records. Okay. And he wouldn't be able to perform in his own kitchen if he boycotted places where human rights were abused. Okay. And he's got bills um, to pay. 
Yeah, so there you go. Just just dismissing the suffering of many people. Uh, the other major controversy involves David Beckham, who's reportedly received 150 million quid from the Qatari government to act as a World Cup ambassador. Um, it's, of course, led to widespread criticism from LGBT plus campaigners and celebrities such as Rob Rinder, Will Young, and most notably, Joe Lysett. So let's talk exactly about what sports washing is, how it's been used in Qatar 2022, and if any of these celebrities will face repercussions for their involvement. Um, first up, let's bring in Professor Simon Chadwick, Professor of Sport and Geopolitical Economy at SKEMA Business School. Um, and a little That's bit later a title on, and a half, isn't it? Very impressive. Very impressive. And a little <laughs> bit later on, we'll be talking to Mark Bukowski as well, who's uh, founder of Bukowski PR Agency. Um, but let's bring Simon in first. Um, hello, Simon. Can you hear us? Hello. How are you doing? Yeah, Hi, Simon. Good, thank you. Thank you very much for joining us. Um, this World Cup has obviously been mired in in controversy. Um, I suppose the first question would be, how exactly, at, if they have at all, have have Qatar and this World Cup engaged in in sport washing, and if it's been a success? That's a really interesting question because that that it kind of presupposes that that sport washing is a, is an appropriate term to use. Um, yeah. Sport washing, uh, really, as a as a as a as a phrase or as a term, has really only entered, you know, kind of popular vernacular over the last decade, uh, specifically in response to uh, concerns, I think, in Qatar about the treatment of of migrant workers in particular. But if you look back across history, um, including, for example, Britain during colonial times, um, sport has obviously been employed or deployed might be a better word uh to you know to kind of distract people away from uh crimes and misdemeanors in, in which you're involved and you can think about not just britain and the colonies but you know hitler and and uh, the the olympics in berlin in 1936 the argentinian hunter in 1978 at the world cup mm. so you know there, there is a long line of 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 governments and states using sport for various reasons uh, but we're now calling it sport washing. Uh, I think what's happening um, in the Gulf generally, not just in Qatar, but in Saudi Arabia, is, 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 is an attempt to, yes, certainly to manage image and reputation. There's no doubt about it. And you could call that sport washing if, if you wanted to. But I think there's a lot more going on in, in, in Qatar right now than, than simply managing image and reputation. Uh, yeah. there, are, there are issues around nation building, uh, around nation branding, about projecting soft power. And, and so, you know, I, I'm I'm not dismissing the use of, of of this phrase "sport washing," but I think certainly in policy terms, for us just to see the Qatar World Cup as sport washing is yeah. a very da- is actually a very dangerous thing to do because there's a lot more going on there than just that. Yeah, I agree with you there, Simon. Um, what uh, what impact do you think hosting the World Cup will have on Qatar's reputation in the long run? So. Uh, it's, it's some some of your listeners may have heard this this phrase soft power mm. and and soft power is attractive power um the word keyword is is power um mm. because it's it's trying to 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 get the world to like you to see you in a certain way yeah um you know when we like other people when we like other countries we're more likely to talk to them we're more likely to to engage with them we're more likely to take care of them um, we're more likely to to you know, engage in trade relationships with them but the opposite of soft power is soft disempowerment. 
Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that, that has really taken the Catharys by surprise is that they got into all of this, wanting the world to see them in a, in a, in a, in a positive way and to talk talk about them in a positive way yet the reality is certainly in the global north uh, in places like britain and germany and denmark and, and and elsewhere in the global north we're not often talking about qatar in that way so you know we can call this soft disempowerment and i guess the acid test will be for qatar is on the 19th of december the day after the final is how do we talk about them then Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I guess moving forward, it, it will be a result for Qatar if we say nice things about them, if we, we engage with them on a positive basis. But if we're saying bad things and we continue to say bad things in the future, or perhaps we just forget about them, um, yeah. then the outcome for Qatar will not have been satisfactory. And you mentioned that that it's dangerous to maybe just see this tournament as sport washing. Um what else do you, do you think is going on? What other factors are at play here? So, as you say, you know, you, you, you've 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 got to keep in mind that um, Qatar for a long time was a British protectorate. Uh, it was only in 1971; it's only mm. 50, 50 years ago that that Qatar essentially became an independent, in inverted commas, nation. Mm. So, for the first time, Qatar really had control of its of, of, of its foreign policy. It had control of its oil and gas revenues. And it was in the 1990s that the uh, the Emir of Qatar, the old Emir of Qatar, decided that we're going to invest some of our oil and gas wealth, and and so the World Cup became an integral part of of what we can call nation building. And, and nation building is literally that. It's you know, Qatar back in 1971 was essentially desert. Mm. Um, Doha certainly wasn't the city then that it is now. Mm. And so what you what they've done is they've used the World Cup to as the base for building stadiums, but also the roads that connect those stadiums, the metro network, shopping malls, residential accommodation. So it literally is nation building in that sense. But Qatar, Qatar is a very vulnerable nation. If you look at it on a map, it's got Saudi Arabia on one side, mm. Iran on the other side, um, you know, countries like Yemen, Syria, um, so this is this is a very vulnerable nation, and one of the ways in which the Qatar the Qataris have, have used the World Cup is is to build into dependencies with the rest of the world. Mm. So so just to give you an illustration, the United States has got fifteen billion dollars invested in Qatar now, which probably explains why uh, the United States has one of the the biggest well, the biggest military base that it has in the Middle East now located just outside Doha. So what Qatar has sought to do through the World Cup is is to 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 build relationships to draw in investment the united states britain um france italy uh, turkey have all now got reasons to care about qatar and yeah. and i i use these countries uh, in particular because um britain has provided military jets to help protect qatar during the tournament turkey has provided uh, police officers france has provided cybersecurity specialists and this is exactly what qatar wants because qatar fundamentally irrespective of the world cup is deeply vulnerable and the world cup has been one of the ways in which qatar has sought to address that vulnerability and in kind of the, the the research and like doing a bit of reading for for this segment here today, um, our producer Maddie referred me to a brilliant article by uh, David Waring in the Guardian. Again, kind of saying what you are that that the West is certainly, uh, I suppose, integrally involved in Qatar as a state, but also suggesting that the West is uh, complicit in some of the cultural conservatism that we see 
in Qatar that we kind of on social media, knowing the very top line, have been extremely critical of by essentially suggesting that keeping existing elites in their monarchies, that kind of thing, was beneficial to the West because it protected their interests. Do you think there's a level of, of hypocrisy from people like us, Brits, Americans, French, Germans, in saying like, oh, Qataris are culturally conservative and that's bad? Or do you think that there's been a role to play by Western countries there? I, 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 I really don't like kind of labelling and getting into this, you know, he said, she said, you know, mm. it's your it's your fault, it's their fault. And, and yeah. so I'm not going to use the word hypocrisy. I, I prefer to use the word interdependence. Mm -hmm. um, so we know in Britain's case, for example, there has been a centuries long interdependence with the Gulf region. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we, we, we take certain things from them. They take, take certain things from us. At certain times, that relationship, the power balance has been different. I think at this particular moment in time, the power balance has perhaps shifted more towards Qatar and the Gulf. Um, there is no doubt that as a consequence, as a direct consequence of Britain's pres presence in Qatar, you know, I re-emphasize again, Qatar was a protectorate, mm. a British protectorate. You know, we had troops there. We, we took care of Qatar. We helped Qatar to extract its oil and gas. Mm. Um, if you look at the companies that were instrumental in, in, in helping build the Qatari oil and gas industry, they were British. But more significantly, the Kafala labor system in Qatar is a, is a British construct. And, and I mentioned a little earlier about, about, colonial times and sport washing in the first part of the 20th century in South Africa there were 157,000 South African prisoners in British concentration camps in South Africa 28,000 of them died inside uh, those prison camps at the same time Britain was sending football teams and cricket teams and rugby teams um, to South Africa you know to placate and to charm uh, we might call this sport washing if we were to use current vernacular and so I think rather than rather than you know pointing the fingers what's really important is we need to understand the interdependencies that we have I think we do need to understand context and more 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 crucially, and, and I speak as somebody who's been um, to the Gulf many, many times, mm. by pointing the finger and saying you're bad people just antagonizes people in the region. Mm. And I think if we are if we are going to achieve outcomes that we all find acceptable, satisfactory, mutually beneficial, we've got to talk. And and I think part of that conversation is the role that certainly the colonial powers, Britain, France, Spain, Portugal, Belgium, the Netherlands to a certain extent. What roles did we play in countries like Qatar? Because as I say, unless and, and, until such time we've acknowledged our influence on these territories, we're not going to make very much progress in addressing what we perceive to be some of the problems there now. Yeah. And um, Simon, let me just very quickly ask you. Sorry, Hannah, I know I'm, I'm steamrolling all over, <laughs> all over this. There's so just... many questions to ask you. It's such an interesting conversation to have and so educational as well. So. Yeah, it's fascinating. Thanks, and I, I'm in very particularly interested. There's been lots of talk about the Black Eyed Peas and Robbie Williams and people like that. I'm particularly interested in, in David Beckham's role in, in Qatar. Um, obviously, he's been used as, as a World Cup ambassador. Um, we're in a, quite a meta situation now because yesterday he did an Instagram video with the England team who obviously have a huge amount of goodwill. And I now wonder if David Beckham is using um, the good reputation of the England team to maybe, um, um, I suppose, alleviate some of the concerns people have about his role in, in Qatar. I mean, that's something that we'll, we'll ask Mark um, 
when he comes on very shortly. But Simon, when it comes to David Beckham and, and people like that and that kind of co-opting of those famous names who kind of come with a certain degree of, uh, I suppose, cultural goodwill, particularly from people like us in Britain, what, what have you made of, of someone like Beckham's role, for example? So I, uh, I've been in Qatar many times. Mm. Uh, the first time I was invited to go to Qatar, I inevitably had a an internal conversation with myself. And the question was, what do I do? Do I go or don't I go? And I actually spoke to uh, um, somebody I respect, a friend of mine uh, from the Caribbean. And I said, what are your views on this? And he said, you know, as, as the son of slaves, um, can I tell you now, you know, it's better to go and see and, and look and talk and listen and learn um, than to stay away and simply judge. And 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 that was actually quite profound for me. And, and so I have been to Qatar and, and I, I've I've tried, you know, so I've given I've given money to Kenyan security guards to buy bags of rice. And, you know, I've sat in endless taxis talking to you know, Carol and taxi drivers about what it really means to work in Qatar, you know, so I'm under no illusions about what happens in Qatar. Now, you know, there will be people who say, well, you went to Qatar, you know, you're complicit. Or I'm sure there will be other people who say, no matter what you've done when you've, in, when you've been in Qatar, it hasn't been enough. <clears throat> so I think there is, you know, I just, where do you draw the red line and how far do you mm. go? What should you be doing? Yeah. Um, now, how this relates to Beckham, I think, is, is, if you if you engage, for example, with the Qataris on a transactional basis, so in other words, you're giving me millions of pounds, and I'm going to go there and do what do what you've paid me to do, and then not, and, and say nothing and do nothing, then you do lay yourself open to to accusations that you are complicit and you're perpetuating. Yeah. If you if you instead take a more relational view of your engagement with these countries, and that's what I tried always to do is 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 not just to to go and take you know take the benefits and then leave but but to to go and to talk and to listen and to learn and to educate and to try and leave something behind and and i think the the the, the we live in a globalized world and beckham is a is a mega celebrity in a globalized world and and i think it is unfair of us to 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 not to expect him to take advantage of his iconography i think what's more important to do is is in terms of the questioning of beckham is not did you go or didn't you go um it's in terms of you know what did you do while you were there what did you leave behind what contribution did you did you make to to try and effect positive social change and and, and you know i really don't want to be seen seen as being some kind of arrogant neo-colonialist that you know beckham goes there and, and does good things but yeah, the the important detail is, is is Qatar itself. The government in Qatar says it wants to transform. It wants to transform the country. It wants to effect positive social change. And so, I think from from Beckham's perspective, or certainly from our perspective as of pe as people who might question somebody like Beckham, is is to you know simply ask, what contribution have you made to effecting positive social change? Um, you know, how have you helped to transform or how are you helping to transform Qatar? Now, obviously, the answers he gives and whether, how we respond to those answers is, is a different matter. But I think just to go take the money and leave is 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 something that lays you open to criticism. Um, Simon, thank you so much. Honestly, fascinating stuff. We could talk to you for hours about this. Um, but. Unfortunately, we need to leave it there. Thank you so much, Professor thank you very Simon much. Chadwick. So joining us now is Mark Bukowski, founder of Bukowski 
PR agency and author of The Fame Formula. Um, Mark, thank you very much for, for chatting to us. And I think the most prominent figure who's been marred in the controversy of the Qatar World Cup from a, a PR perspective has been David Beckham, one of the most well-known faces people in the world. And um, what did you make of his, his involvement in this Qatar World Cup? Well, uh, you know, he's, he's made the headlines because he is so prominent and apocryphally, um, uh, who knows, um, he's been um, paid a substantial consultancy um, figure for it. I don't think he's the only one um, who has been involved with it, but because he's so high profile. And interestingly, it came soon after um, a lot of positivity that surrounded his 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 decision to queue, um, um, to see or to make his pilgrimage to, to the Queen's Coffin as it lay in state. So um, David Beckham makes news. So clearly that's why the authorities and the uh, people connected with the World Cup in, in Qatar wanted him there. You make a decision because obviously we look at him from a UK perspective, but, you know, Beckham is a global name. Mm. He has a huge traction across the world, particularly in America, Japan, Asia. Um, and um, that's why they wanted him there. He's made a decision to be involved, um, like many other people um, who've made a decision to be involved with that. And, of course, the attraction of the negative PR came from the Joe Lysett sort of social media yeah. stuff, which is very clever, um, you know, and, um, you know, clearly um, the issues that are embodied in a state like Qatar um, around the LGBTQ community is, is significant. Um, so it was always going to be controversial, but he would have weighed up that decision um, in terms of his global impact. And of course, it was a financial decision, you know, that he clearly decided to take this money and he would have weighed up the reputational impact from it. So we have a perspective here, probably, probably a lot of people in Western Europe have a perspective on here, but I'm not sure that it is shared in many other territories who possibly are either pragmatic or don't think many of the issues that surround Qatar World, um, the World Cup in Qatar is is of significance in the way that we feel um, that those issues should be taken very seriously. And from a PR perspective, I suppose, the, and we're talking about the money. The, the figure that's reported is one hundred fifty million pounds. That's what that's what we think it is. If David Beckham was your client, and this had been an opportunity that had come up for him, would you have advised him to take it, or would you have advised against it? Um, it, it it, it's, it's never a good thing to put a decision like that huh? because I just don't know mm. what the factors were in making that decision. There's been a lot of negative hype around Qatar. What's interesting is the way um, the, the authorities have used all the journalists, all the media, the energy that surrounds the World Cup and turned it to their advantage. You can weigh these things up um, in terms of what is your long-term legacy. Mm. Um, and I think what, we, what we're missing here is David Beckham's legacy is not necessarily, you know, to be harvested in the UK. I mean, he spends a lot of time in America. Um, he has 
you know, always been a global um, sporting name. Well, what's he want to do? If we think of all the huge sporting um, figures from Brazil, from France, and be connected to it, and also the decision from FIFA to, to allow Qatar to pitch for it, that's a given. Um, there's a lot of sort of virtue signaling hypocrisy around this. I always say to people, David Beck included, if you don't want to be involved, don't go. Um, a lot of people are half pregnant about this or a little pregnant about this. You know, there's been, you know, a lot of attention on Gary Lineker and the speech he made. Does that, does that finish there? Should players actually go? Should countries be allowed to be represented in it? Those things have been brushed to one side and it's a very complicated thing. I was with a very interesting, I got involved in a very heated debate last night over someone who said, well, think about what Qatar has done to open their doors for this criticism. Look at what Qatar has done is inviting people into the country who are going to have arguably a profounder change on the population in Qatar. Um, of course, they're using it for soft power. Why would they bid? Why would they spend the millions on it? But it never is quite what it seems until we get beyond the social media and chatter around it and all the sort of virtue signaling goes on we should have a, a bigger vision. You know, I personally, you know, think he possibly and many people shouldn't, but as soon as the World Cup had been given to Qatar, they should have stood aside. Mm. Um, but people haven't done that. And as I said, there is a, a lot of pragmatic decisions being taken and people have been very hip hypocritical about it, whether if there were these reservations of the guitar, why did they, anybody go there in the first place? Why did they not make a stand at the beginning to boycott it? Um, I, because they haven't. I think you're right, actually. And it's interesting, isn't it? With uh, virtue signaling, I think is a is an interesting term for it because there's an element that we go, oh, David Beckham shouldn't be doing that. Oh, it's 150 million pounds. But then as football fans, we don't expect our football team to, to stand aside. And now they're in a quarterfinal and we're kind of only thinking about the football. And it, there's kind of, our, our morality kind of has degrees where, where it's applicable. Do you think that, I suppose there's also an argument that how can we expect states like um, Qatar to become, it sounds very patronising, but progressive in what we'd um, see it as in a Western sense? And how can we expect things to move forward and there to be yeah. this cohesion throughout the world and the global community if we don't allow these events to take place and these conversations to happen? So maybe this is a necessary tournament. Well, I think, I think that's a very important. It's a question of how quickly do we, we want to see change? Mm. Um, and I think rightly so in, in many issues um, that, are, that, that we discuss here in, in terms of rights and, and, and race and whatever, are we expecting change to happen too quickly? Is there an impatience? Do we want everything now? Which is an impossibility because change is gradual and arguably, you know, where many of these countries have got to in the last, you know, five years is very difficult, different to where they're going to be the next 10 or 20 years. Um, and, you know, even some of the figures about um, the deaths of workers on these, on these stadiums have been exaggerated. If you break them down, I think there were, and these are still too big, actually 74 deaths, not 5,000, because... Um, you know, direct deaths from construction accidents are 74 people. Mm. Um, but of course, people leap on top of that. Um, and if we want to see profound change in the world, I mean, 
today we're commenting on this issue. There was nearly a coup in Germany this morning. You know, I don't think we, we need to say that so there was a group of there was a group of people, well-organized people, who nearly established a governmental regime change in Germany. I mean, that is too frightening to think about. Mm. And the world is complex and people make decisions. So therefore, what are the facts? What is the truth? What isn't clickbait? What isn't social media, you know, chatter that's like a flock of starlings that flutter around <laughs> in one day is one day is a huge explosion, next day we've forgotten about it. How do we sustain a conversation, a sensible conversation over a longer period of time to really investigate these things? Um, and we tend not to. We're in a very fast-moving media age. Um, we are looking for those people to forge opinion who perhaps are just micro stars overnight because they, you know, what are these influencers who come out of a reality show and they're telling us what to buy? Um, the world is going through a, a, a profound set of important issues that I, I, I'm weary about that we don't have the necessary intellectual debate and we get thrown into these spasms of, you know, fevered um, um, conversation that mm. doesn't really move anything on. And I think the whole of the, you could argue, not David Beckham, but the whole of the, the football world are hypocritical, ultimately. Um, and and uh, Infantino and his speech about how he felt Arabic, how he felt gay, how he felt minority, how he felt, you know, was just an hour-long rambling rant. And we all know that FIFA has taken a lot of hits for its reputation from Set Blatter or whatever. Mm. What do we expect? When there was an Olympic boycott back in the day of countries going, I think it was to Russia, um, we don't do those blanket boycotts now. And we leave it to focusing on criticizing individuals for whatever decision they take right or wrong um, without having a bigger conversation and a meaningful conversation about issues because we expect everything to be changed overnight and that's just impossible. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I couldn't agree more and I, I, I would echo that and encourage people that as opposed to um, seeing a tweet and letting that be the be all and the end all of your opinion, maybe use that as the jumping off point to start doing a bit of balanced research and actually <laughs> inform yourself and join the discourse as opposed to, to wading in when, when perhaps you don't have the information. I'm just, just very quickly, Mark, because we do need to, to wrap up. What do you think from a PR perspective the legacy of this World Cup will be? Well, it's going to be very interesting. You touched on it. Can you imagine what is going to happen if um, England win the World Cup? Are we going to remember? Are we going to think about all the sort of negative debate that surrounded it, all the issues of corruption, all the... No, just going to remember, because football is very strange. People mm. just want to know about success. Um, it, there was a very famous uh, Chinese diplomat who was asked the question about what he thought about the French Revolution and its impact and he said, I think it was about 10 years ago, yeah. it's far too early to say. Yeah. And I think when we look back at these events, I think that there might have been some significant things we've missed here that have created a profound change. There might not be, um, but I think that if we're expecting things to be 
you know, write it overnight, we're going to be wrong. But maybe, just maybe, the influence of all those people from all parts of the world, you know, spending their time and getting it might actually affect some long-time change in the Middle East, which we all know has got to do a lot of work to get into the 21st century. Um, Mark, thank you so much. Absolutely fascinating stuff. Um, real pleasure having you on. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Now, oh, Hannah, right. are you ready for a big fat gear change? Yes, I'm always <laughs> ready for a gear change. Always ready. I was born ready, Joe. Because it's time. <laughs> I was going to say give it to me, but that sounds a bit weird. Don't do that. Uh, because it's time for the World Cup's funniest moments. And the man who is single-handedly providing, I would say, 58% of the hilarity at this tournament is Jack Grealish. Are you referring to all the um, videos, Instagram memes and stupid videos and stuff that I constantly send you? Most of them are of Jack Grealish. I think he might be the most amusing man in Britain. He um, is. I really do. Um, and he has been the latest victim of Bukayo Saka's spelling school. Let's hear it. Yeah. You got another one? Yeah. Spell aesthetic, aesthetic, however you say it. A-E-S-T-E-T-H-I-C. Wrong! <laughs> Stop smiling like that, bro, you're wrong. Hey, Mr. Grealish, do you want to spell something? Spell something quick. Spell, spell rhythm. Rhythm? Yeah. What? Do you, know, do you know what's weird? So my six-year-old has a spelling test every Thursday and he would be able to spell those words. But what I like about Jack Grealish is I I don't, I, like we're not making fun of him because we don't think that he's like an intelligent man. I just think he's one of like, he's he's basically the undiscovered chuckle brother. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. He's just a bit of a dopey legend. He, like I always say this, he reminds you of, he's like your mate's younger brother on a stag do. Yeah. Like that's very much his vibe. Or like a really drunk mother-in-law kind of vibe. Like, <laughs> yeah. I just don't ask your dad. I just don't know. That kind of thing. He's the most adorable man. And he's always yeah. just bowling around with a big grin on his face. And we um, also want England to do well so that we can see Jack Grealish just go on the, like a three-week bender after yeah. the, the tournament. Because that's what we live for. To see, We'll see him in Ibiza with like Gary Lineker's brother, like having selfies and stuff off his face, haven't slept for three days kind of thing. We live oh, yeah, for that. He, he went nuts when City won the league. So this, <laughs> this could be the end of Jack. This could be rehab. <laughs> um, also, did you see um, during the England-Senegal game, the uh, the Senegalese band, who the guys who got the Senegal painted on their chest, all the letters, yes. right? Um, apparently, they've been moonlighting in Spain because they uh, they went to watch Spanish side Leganes play yeah. um, last season. And because it's all the same letters, they just rearranged the order they stand in. <laughs> Um, uh, yeah, I enjoyed that very, very much. Um, okay, so it's time for Tell Me Something I Don't Know. It's all about exploring some of the most important aspects of football that rarely get discussed. And this week, we are focusing on football lawyers. What are they? Why are they needed? And how do they get footballers and football clubs out of sticky situations? Um, let's bring in Chris Farnell, senior partner at IPS law firm, um, who advises multiple Premier League teams. Um, Chris, can you hear me? Oh, he's connecting to audio. 
Hello, yeah. Chris. Hi, Chris. Hi. Um, thank you very much for joining us, Chris. Um, firstly, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna jump straight in there, Chris. How much of your day-to-day job is extracting footballers from scandals? <laughs> no, that's, that's basically the premise of the conversation <laughs> give us the dirt give us the, the gossip. gossip yeah no, exactly um, you know it no, if, if, if i do my job correctly i don't often have to do that so i'm quite fortunate <laughs> oh very very well answered very well so basically what i want to know in another kind of way to angle that question do you have a blank checkbook and access to a jet where there's a problem with a player and you need to get down there and pay somebody off is this this is sensationalized is this how it works or are we totally off, off oh absolutely the and a private jet always on standby and uh, and a multitude of passports as well mate so all very james bonds oh i love it <laughs> so what so what what kind of is is your day today what do your main responsibilities be as a football lawyer for, for a club or a player? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's actually quite a, a, a large mix of, uh, of things that can be involved, really. Um, you've obviously got disputes between clubs and agents um, uh, or, or uh, in between sponsors as well. Then you have got the sponsorship side of matters and image rights and data rights. And uh, then you've got the, the player negotiations and transfers when they move. And there's probably quite a few little bits and pieces in, in the middle there between them. But it is quite a wide range. It makes it very appealing to me anyway. And it, it's not just a straight nine to five um, uh, legal uh, advice type situation, really. I've done a bit of like kind of work at football clubs and stuff. And when you get a football player in a room for an interview or a piece of filming or whatever, there are so many people who come with them. And <laughs> relatively, that's an unimportant part of their job. So you've got agents and their PAs and all that kind of stuff and different people there. I wonder when when you're working with players like, I don't know, the huge players, your Neymars and Bappes, Ronaldos, and you're trying to negotiate deals for them, how many different people are involved in something yeah. like that? Yeah, not, I mean, in fairness, and, and uh, you know, one of, one of the three that you just mentioned there is, is and has been a client, but yep. they... Um, it's not like that in the in the negotiations. It's very much focal points, and there's normally quite uh, only a small number of people that would be would be in the room, and, and there's a lot of pre-planning goes into it as well. So when you actually get in the room, you're actually really only sorting out the finite bits, and all of the, the sort of the bigger work has been done in preparation for that one meeting in any event, anyway. But it, it is then slightly different if you're doing a, a sponsorship contract because you've got not only the sponsorship contract, but you've also got non-competing and non-conflicting type situations. So you tend to have a, a sort of a, a, a grid or a map of which territory has which rights and which territory doesn't have those rights, etc. So it does become a little bit like that, but not really in meetings. Meetings generally, you 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 create the work and you do the work before the meeting, and then the meeting in in effect a sign off because you kind of imagine it's not necessarily the players that you'd have the the trouble with it's the agents wanting to get the the most out of every single deal that's that's gone ahead um i'm going to ask you put you on the spot here um chris what's the most difficult job that you've ever been involved in if you can tell us mm, that, that those are generally more of the the strict legal issues uh in, in court cases um those are the, the most difficult ones because you within a margin of error the judge can always apply a discretion so you're never really quite sure in litigation you you, you may have a good idea but you're never really quite sure what the, the final outcome will be uh, other matters I, I have to be honest with you I, I find dealing with those sort of scenarios as part and parcel of my job I'm quite used to it to be fair so yeah again with planning and, and, and good skills you can placate issues I mean you say that agents always trying to squeeze the last bit out of a transaction 
but I mean that is in effect their job and yeah. they are doing that for the players so the players do yeah. accept that as well and you know agents get a, a bad rep uh, in a lot of situations I'm not saying that some of it isn't deserved but uh, they're also an, an easy scapegoat for clubs to blame or, or for you know for reasons right. to, to break down and blame the agent in general uh, players have a very good relationship with their agents uh, and it's a very tight one as well I mean there are instances where that, that there are fallouts of course but it's uh, it, it's not all uh, sort of doom and gloom in relation to agents really and also one of the things I, I'm kind of particularly interested in is is club ownership um, mm. and that's something that's been huge in the past few years as we've seen uh, various clubs think of Macclesfield Town and clubs like um, uh, Blackburn and people like that struggle in those situations and clubs all across the world. Um, I know you were the lead lawyer um, for the 2016 sale of Swansea, um, yeah. advised Massimo Cialino um, during the Leeds takeover, um, your club director at Wigan as I well, was, yes. I, was, I believe. Yeah. So, I mean, you've you kind of got much more um, intimate view than, than we might have. What are your kind of views on the that ownership model and you've got the fit and proper owners test, haven't you? Is there, is there stricter regulations needed around who can own football clubs in this country? Well, I think they've changed significantly over the last sort of 20 years. I mean, football is uh, over the last 15, 20 years, perhaps maybe a slightly more, it, it has become different in the way they organise matters from the local sort of people and businessmen that formed a board and, and a wealthy local owner would be the chairman of the board. Mm for no other reason than with a wealthy local owner. It, it has changed significantly now in terms of football ownership and quite rightly too as well, because football and especially at the Premier League or Championship level, it's, you know, it's heavily monetized and it's big business. So simply because you're a local individual doesn't mean to say you're going to offer the best advice to the football club and, and take the club further forward. Um, so it, it has changed. Um, does it need to be tightened further? I think that the EFL and the Premier League do a very good job, uh, in fairness, in, in assessing and looking at all of the details in relation to ownership, the source of funding, where the monies have come from, who are the individuals, are they, do they have clean backgrounds? Um, I don't think if I was to buy a radio station, you go through any sort of those regulations at all. So I do actually think that football is quite regulated, to be to be frank with you. Um, the, the difficulty arises uh, when people invest in football club, perhaps for the wrong reasons. Uh, it may well be that the investor has quite significant amounts of money, but buys the wrong football club for the wrong reasons, uh, or it's not a good natural fit. So I think that the key issue is actually trying to get a good owner with, with a football club that suits what he wants to do and that's the key issue it's not a, a football club isn't for everybody it, it's certainly uh and people's egos change when they become owners of football clubs as well and and that's a separate issue that happens after the event so it again it's not a, a straightforward homogenous position there are lots of external factors that come into play here yeah and what's your favorite part of the job Chris because now I've realized it's not just about having a private jet and a blank checkbook <laughs> dealing with all these scandals is actually yeah. a lot more to it um, which is very interesting but so many different parts to your job what's your favorite part of all I think I, I'm very fortunate I think in working in the area in which I do because um, football players athletes in general uh, it's not a nine-to-five job so that means you're you're always sort of on call you're always working but the relationship you can form and, uh, with uh, with a client in football or in sport is a little bit far deeper than it would be with a normal sort of average person that walks in off the street. So I think that the relationship that I have and I've been very fortunate that from the start of somebody's career to the end of somebody's career, I've been involved in their in, in their life and and become 
uh, sort of a, a close friend afterwards and speak on a regular basis. And and I, I do That's like awesome. that relationship side of things. And I think yeah. that in sport in general that's a, a, a rather unique position yeah oh, well, thank you very much chris fascinating stuff <laughs> thank I you really chris appreciate you coming on no right. uh, chris farnell their senior partner and owner of ips law firm i'm um, advises leading premier league clubs and, and players really fascinating stuff um hannah that's all we've got time for today oh he was so cool wasn't he yeah really cool really cool T- tied us in knots um <laughs> Right, okay, so thank you very much, Hannah, of course. And next week, we're going to be talking to Josh Pugh. Hey, Joshy Pugh. He's <laughs> Josh. so funny. Love um, that guy. Comedian Josh Pugh is going to be here. If you've got any questions for Josh, um, do give us a shout. And the big conversation is all about treatment of women in Qatar. Plus, we'll be speaking to Dr. Ryan Beale about how AI technology is being used in football. Um, right, <laughs> thank you very much, Hannah. Thanks, Joe. Um, right, and we will see you next time. <laughs> Bye.